Thanks, guys. Hey, everybody. So if you haven't been here for a little while, um, I started last week on a four-week series on worship in which I haven't talked about worship really much yet and probably won't this week. Um, And that's mainly because um, what I said last week was that my, my real goal for these four weeks is to persuade you that coming to church most of the Sundays of the rest of your life is one of the most important and worthwhile things that you could possibly do. And that's partly because I like to argue for things that people find impossible to be persuaded of, and partly because I think it's one of the most important things for us to know as Christians. Um, That even though coming to church may sound like a non-glamorous, repetitive addition to your life, that it's one that Jesus wants in your life for an enormous good purpose for you, not just because it's intrinsically good because of who he is. And that um, if, we, if you read through the Bible carefully and try to, try to get God's perspective on this, um, you should come to a place of despair that you could really live the kind of vibrant Christian life we were meant to have aloof from the local church. Um, and that the public discipline of belonging to a community of a church is actually more important for your personal transformation and the transformation of others spiritually than anything you can do on your own or privately. I think that that's what Scripture teaches. Um, and then, so last week I also argue, basically said that there's, I thought, three reasons why people find that intrinsically difficult to believe. And that is, for these three objections, one is the cynical one, which is basically like, basically this, where does God get off telling us that we should worship him anyway? You know, even if I were to concede that God existed or that it was somewhat like the Bible God, um, isn't it a little self-important uh, at best and maniacal at worst to command a whole humanity to worship him? And the answer to that question is, go online and listen to last week's sermon. Um, because I talked about that a bit, for a bit. The second one is what I call just the misguidedly spiritual, and that's the idea that yeah, 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 God exists, and we, I want to be spiritual, but not really religious. And so, I mean, I just really feel like, can't you just go and worship? If God is everywhere, and if God created everything, then can't you just go out and worship God, like on the trail or in the mountains? Or can I just, like, read my Bible at home and worship God? Isn't private worship or isn't worship out in the world, you know, just as good or better or a, an adequate replacement? And the, 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 and I talked about that some last week also. The answer is no, but, the, but that is not to say that I want to take anything away from private Bible reading and studying of Scripture and getting to know God through personal spiritual disciplines, or that going out into nature to see God is actually a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing, given the proper context. Because, because one of the revelations God has given us is the general revelation of the natural world. I mean, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. A verse later says, day and night they pour forth speech. Contextually, that means about God. So you can, but here's the problem. With the, that there's a limitation. Because when you go out into nature to worship God, the problem is you're only actually worshiping content-wise one sliver of what God should be worshiped for. You're interacting the sublimeness of a particular kind of God's creation that you're in, interacting with emotionally. So you're engaging with natural sublimeness. But that's it. In God's character are an enormous number of other things that he should and rightly should be worshipped for that you could enjoy worshipping him in if you knew them and understood them deeply, and they, they are not perceivable by observing nature. 
but they are discussed and rehearsed and talked about when we gather together and we speak about what the Scripture calls the whole counsel of God, or everything God has to say to us about himself and about us. The other thing is nature is good for solitude, right? Solitude is good. There are times where Jesus, there's all kinds of people in his life, he's socialed out, and he goes out somewhere to seek God, not because God is out in the hills and he's not among the people. God's image is most impressed in the created world in humans. So getting away from humans to get closer to God, generally speaking, is a wrong-headed idea. But solitude is good. It is a good thing. Um, to quote the cutting edge, too much solitude isn't good, but generally speaking, it is. Okay? I guess you've got to be 30 to know that one. So, um, anyway, the point is, is that solitude is good, but, it, but it is not the thing. It's not the only thing. It is a sliver. It is a bit. It is an add-on to what life in God is about. Now, so therefore, the third objection is the cautious investment. And that is, Nick, don't you realize that church happens on a weekend? And how could it possibly be worth it to go to church most of the rest of the Sundays of my life if, in fact, it's going to be during prime sleeping time or hunting time or shopping time or fly fishing time or whatever? And the answer to that question is, I'm going to talk about that this morning. Because when you begin to boil down, I think the real reason we make the second objection and most of the reason we make the third one is that it comes down to the claim, essentially, that church is a burden. And my response to the idea that church is a burden is, yes, you're right, church is a burden. In fact, in just a few minutes, I was able to come up with at least nine burdens that are involved in being part of a church. Um, and if you want to hear more about these, listen to the first several, first 18 minutes of the first hour, but I'm going to try to go through these faster this hour. One is the doctrinal burden. Because, you see, if you go out into nature, nature does not get doctrinally specific with you, with you in a way you don't want to get specific. It's here that we get specific. And it's a burden because who wants to deal with the doctrine, of, for example, of human depravity? The sublimeness of mountains is a much easier and much vaguer doctrine to get interacting with. I was talking with somebody this week, and we were talking about faith, and we got on the subject. I said, listen, don't you—I mean, come on. We are all looking for the religion that is specific enough to tell us everything's going to be okay and we're going to go to heaven and vague enough to let us do whatever we want. He was like, yeah, can we get—let's we, make up that religion. I was like, I, we can't. I mean, like, that's—instinctively, uh, that's what we all want. We want a religion that's vague enough to let us do whatever we want, but— says a few things specifically about how things are going to turn out okay. That religion does not exist, okay? Or has no credibility to it. We get specific here, and that's a burden, right? It's doctrinal burden. The second is the structural burden, and that is the minute you structure and schedule worship, you know if you missed it. And then you have the opportunity to feel bad. So, for example, I have a gym membership, but I do not have times when I go to the gym. So I haven't been to my gym in eight months, but I don't feel bad about it because I'm not supposed to go on Wednesday. Right? And the minute Sunday comes every week on Sunday, if you didn't go, you know you didn't go, and you missed it. So the, the minute you structure it, it creates a burden of failure, right? Or being there in performance, right? There's also the psychological burden, and that is there is a real mental cost to dealing with who God really is and who you really are every single week. To come in here and to sing and express worship or to think about who God is in a way in which you allow God to be God and for that to press in upon who you really are is enormously emotionally, psychologically exhausting. Because it's humiliating. You feel real moral guilt. You feel embarrassed about who you really are. But you, but you also feel encouragement. And you feel like, like every week you feel, I'm totally lost, but yet Jesus has totally found me. And it's like you die and you rise from the dead every time you interact with God, really. Psychologically. And it's emotionally exhausting. It has, there's a psychological burden. There's also a social burden, and that is that you have to be around real people that you don't pick. Right? 
Some of us, it's fine for us to be around people, but darn it, we want to pick them. And the problem with the church is it's everybody who loves Jesus, and that's kind of a cross-section, turns out. And if you don't sort by going to some church that's specifically designed just for your little cross-section, you go to kind of a general church— you're, you're dealing with people that you didn't pick And they're weird And they're older than you Or younger than you And they listen to different music than you And like they're And you don't find them interesting And they find you annoying And we're all supposed to love each other Right? And that's a social burden There's the responsibility burden Because you realize That communities and movements Need to get things done And people will want you To carry some of that weight Right? You're like This church kind of does a bunch of stuff You read through the bulletin You're like Look at all this stuff we're doing They're going to want me to do something you know, like hold a baby, or I don't know what, but it's going to be bad, right? So there's a, there's a you'll feel, because after a while, either you'll, you'll feel bad about freeloading, or you'll have to do something. Sorry, it's a responsibility burden. There's the consumption burden, and that is that the experience of church isn't perfectly tailored to you and for your perfect little life. That is, I don't use Google Analytics to make sure that everything we do is perfect for you, okay? Sorry, because that's not possible, and it's, it's not even desirable, we're supposed to be a fundamentally diverse community. And, the, and our whole culture is set up to sort us out so that we never interact with anybody who's not like us. So you go to the news source you like, and you comment among the 30,000 quotes on that, uh, comments on the one news article, and they all agree that the person in the news article thinks is crazy is crazy. Right? And you go, that's right, he is crazy. I'm glad we all agree. Send. Because that's just how it all works. We all just sort to be just like with each other, and that's not how the world works. And, I, and the church isn't supposed to be consumptionally situated for your preferences. It's not supposed to be. And so therefore, you are going to have to work to connect with stuff. It's going to take emotional and moral and virtuous energy for you to connect with what the church is. And it's supposed to be that way because it's supposed to turn you into a non-spiritual weakling. It's intentional, but it's a burden. It is a burden. There's a financial burden that is eventually you're going to realize that everything we do costs money and that you're either freeloading or you have to participate. There's a financial burden. It's going to cost you some of your money or you're going to eventually feel bad about it not, right? If you think about other people. Eighth is there's an offense burden because you are going to get offended. Here's the thing, because if it's a general, general thing, we don't all know everything about each other, people are going to say stuff that you're going to find insensitive because they don't know your whole life history and how easily you're offended, right? And so people are going to say stuff that's going to bother you, right? I, my first pastor once said, said, look, if you don't get to go to church, if you don't get offended at least once a week at church or really offended about once a month, you're just not going to the right church. They're just not playing ball, right? And there, there was one, one um, pastor, actually, he and his wife, I was reading, and they were talking about how, how much they hate to go to church, right? He's about my age, and he says, here's why we hate to go to church. We're, we're in our early 30s, and we're infertile. And every church we go to that's full of 30-somethings, they're all talking about all the babies. Oh, somebody had a baby. Let's have this another baby. Who had another baby? Look at all the babies. God, thank you for all the babies. And us raising our babies to love Jesus. And babies, babies, baby, baby. I mean, it's just like, it's so maddening for them. And they're just, every time they go to church, it's so frustrating. And the thing, nobody knows that. And nobody's trying to offend them, but it still hurts. And the fact is, is that we all have these little nicks and scratches and stuff in our life that are going to get poked. And if you're going to hang in there with other people that you didn't pick that aren't perfectly like you because we all love Jesus, you're gonna, that's going to cost you. There's going to be an offense burden. And then there's going to be an engagement burden. And that is that worship, learning, and loving others is hard work. And most of us believe Sunday is supposed to be vacation day. Just interacting, listening, singing, that's, that's labor. It's labor. It's, it's not particularly rest. And if we don't 
engaged, we're not doing it. And so there's so, look, yeah, you're probably thinking, well, Nick, you missed like seven that I can think of. That's the whole point. The whole point is I am conceding up front that church is a burden, okay? Being part of the local church is a burden, okay? But here's the issue. One of the things that we need to think about is what do you do when you decide something in life is actually a burden, okay? So I actually— I actually am going to do something. I need to volunteer somebody who is not going to keel over and die if they are holding up 45 pounds. Can I have a volunteer? I need one person. Yes, Brennan, you can be the one. Come on. I'm going to take this microphone sound, guys, for him. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to put this backpack on. Okay. All right. And when, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and you're going to try not to be cute because otherwise you'll mess up my illustration. <laughs> I don't mean not handsome, I just mean not creative. Okay, there we go. You okay? Yeah. All right, here. Turn the mic on. There's a little switch. There we go. Awesome. All right, so great. So, okay, so that's a backpack, right? Yes. And so if I didn't need that back for three weeks, and I told you that you could carry it everywhere you go for three weeks, all the time, never taking it off, um... Would you would you want to do that? No, probably not. Okay, good. That was that's we're already going better than Lazarus. Okay, so great. Oh, here let's step over here. So okay, now if I told you that um, I I actually knew what you were going to be doing the next three weeks and you actually don't, it's going to be a lot different than what you think you're going to be doing the next three weeks. Would you be interested to know what you're doing and what's in the backpack before you make that decision? Yes. So great. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. That's great. You're done. Okay. You can take it off. <laughs> Sweet. So the whole point is here is, is that you don't have to take my word for it. Common sense would state that something can be a substantial burden, and yet you could also concede that unless we answer two questions, we don't actually know if we don't want to carry it. Because we may be going somewhere where we need the contents. And so before we go, well, church is a burden, we shouldn't go. There's two questions we need to answer. The first is, where are we actually going if we belong to Jesus? And two, what do we actually need to get there? And does the burden actually contain exactly the things we need? Does that make sense? And so that's what I want to yell at you about for the next several minutes. Because... I think that there's a truism that if we, if we do not ask those questions and something just seems heavy, we are going to always overestimate the difficulty of the burden. It's always going to feel heavier than it really is because we're going to have a bad attitude about carrying it. And secondly, we're going to underestimate the value of what's in it because we're going to be prone to blow it off. And when we blow things off quickly mentally, we don't reflect on them clearly enough to understand their real value. So we'll take the backpack, which is the church, and we'll go, why should I have to carry this? This is stupid. We don't even look in it. We throw it off and we go, well, it's a burden. It's actually supposed to be a burden. And where you're going and what's in it are really important, okay? So I want to try to answer those two questions, okay? So the first is, that was for a different illustration I don't have time for, but they're puppies with backpacks. Okay, isn't that cute? That's just, that's not fair. Okay, so the first is, the church is God's plan for worship. That is, when you ask the question, where are we going? Where are we going as a local church? Why should I come to this thing we do on Sunday morning? Every Sunday morning, that's so boring. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, here's, here's why. Because um, worship, okay, this is going to annoy you for a second, some of you, so just hang with me, okay? Worship is not the goal. The church is. 
You see, people think, oh, I go to church on Sunday morning for worship. That's not what you're doing. You can go through the whole New Testament and find anywhere the New Testament talks about the church gathering together and see if you can find a word referring to worship anywhere in the context of that, and you will not. Now, that is not because we don't come together for worship. We do come together for worship. But the primary purpose of why we come together and how we select what we do when we're together is not worship. And that's because God's greater plan for his own glorification is actually not us singing to him. But it is to create an organism of human beings that is a thing that glorifies him, the church. That's what he's doing. And if we don't see that, then we look at this and we go, ah, that's people I don't really like. I'll sing songs in my car. Because isn't worship the goal? Isn't worship what God wants? No. That's not what God wants. What God wants is a church that displays his manifold glory to the world. Last week I talked a little bit about, um, and here's why this is important, okay? Because for most Christians, if we were able to, like, give them that, like, like spy truth serum, right? And they were like, okay, you know, so we're like, it's like an episode of Burn Notice, and you're like, okay, what is the most embarrassing thing about Christianity, right? And they, they were like, they were not trained. They weren't like, blockbuster video Des Moines, Iowa. But they were like, they would, they would probably say, the church, the church is the most embarrassing thing about Christianity. And in fact, Barna, who is this like really big Christian writer guy, actually said in one of his books, the lo- if the local church is the hope of the world, then the world has no hope. Which I understand why you say stuff like that, but it's theologically really ugly. Because if God, God declares himself in the Bible as intrinsically glorious, that is, he is the being of supreme intrinsic worth in all things, okay? Now, the question is, for God's glorification is, how does the, how does the creation realize that again? Sin has broken it. So you have a God who is supremely intrinsically worthwhile, and then you've got a creation that doesn't know that anymore, how do you get back to a place of redemption where the creation realizes again that God— So when we were singing the song before about lifting God up, we, we weren't lifting God up. We were lifting God's reputation in our own minds. That's what we meant by that. It's art. It, we sp- it's a little bit—we speak in metaphor. It's not all particularly literal. But what we were saying was oh, we're lifting up, God, your reputation in our hearts and minds and seeking for your reputation and people's valuing of you and their enjoyment of you. We're, we're seeking to make that greater— more because that's what should be valued, should be understood as worthwhile. That's what we're doing. Now, um, once you recognize that, you, because people get hung up over the word glory and glorify, but listen, we use it just like this in normal parlance. Think about this. Some kid gets a video game that's like rated M for mature, and where you go around and you shoot a lot of Russians or something like that. These are games I generally would approve of for myself, but not for others. And so, um, you, so you say, well, we don't like that game because—I'm just kidding. I don't approve of those. Sorry, Alan. Um, so, you, so, you, so you say, no, wait. No, th- th- these games glorify violence, right? It glorifies violence. Now, what do we mean by that? That is, the game makes violence look good or not bad. That's the whole point. That's what glorify means. It means you're raising the reputation of something beyond what it deserves. So something that's morally blameworthy, it makes it look good, right? That's That's why it's right to object to art that makes things that are awful look good. It's, a mis- it's an intrinsic misuse of art. Even if somebody calls it art, it may even be art, but it's morally blameworthy art because it takes something that's intrinsically evil and makes it look intrinsically good by the use of art, for example, right? So when we say glo- what, what, you're glorifying violence, you're, you're raising its reputation, 
right? And, you, and when we say that, we use it as a pejorative because we're saying you should— see, you use pejorative. See, it was, you're saying it shouldn't be that way. But you see, with God, when we glorify God, what we're saying is we're trying to act in such a way and live in such a way that his reputation would be raised to what it should be, which is never going to happen in this life, but we're trying to get it closer. We're trying to get the creation back to the place where what they think God's reputation should be is the supreme worth that it ought to be. Now the question then is, what is God's plan for that? And it's very easy for us to think that God's plan for that is worship, and it's not. Worship is a part of that plan, but there is one thing that is the plan, and the Bible says the one thing that is the plan is the people of God together becoming God's people more fully in an organism called the church. If you go back to the Old Testament, if you've read it, you think of the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Torah. Um, there's all these laws about what God's people are going to be like, but are all those laws, how, what percentage of those laws are focused on how you're to worship God? A lot of them, right? But not near all of them. Maybe half, right? Partly because people hadn't been worshiping God rightly, and so God had to really sort that out, took a lot of laws to do that with. But there's all these laws about what to wear, what their economics was supposed to be like, what their politics was supposed to be like, how they were supposed to regulate their own sexuality. I mean, it was very intrusive. And and here's the thing. It regulated them not as a worship—not just as worshipers, but as a people— The Torah said what the people of God were going to be like, and it recorded the story of a group of desert shepherds becoming the people of God because he chose them and drew them to himself. So you see, God's whole point in the Old Testament was to create a people for himself that would worship him rightly so that God's worth, and what that means among a group of people, would radiate out through them to humanity. And God's plan has not changed. When Christ comes, and Christ did what he did, he died for our sins and drew us himself, he drew us all as individuals into a people that when it's rightly related to God through Christ and is becoming a people together, God's reputation and glory radiates out into all the world because of the people he's made for himself. Therefore, it is an oxymoron. It is literally self-defeating to say, I belong to Jesus, but I'm not integrally related to the church. It's like saying that you're a single, that you're, you're a married bachelor, or saying that you're the, you're the specific kind of triangle that has four sides. It it's literally doesn't make sense if we believe about the church what God tells us about the church in the scriptures. And I don't say that to try to be mean or anything. I want to clear that up for you if you're confused on it. Let's look, at, let's look at a particular passage. This is probably the clearest passage in the New Testament. The book of Ephesians is this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this church in modern-day Turkey, and he's explaining to them what it means that Christ has saved them. So the first couple of chapters, Paul talks about how God chose us, and he drew us to himself, and he did it in Christ. In chapter 2, there's this whole section about how he's like, it was nothing you did, but because God loved us and had compassion on us, he didn't look at the works we hadn't done, but he gave us his grace. We came to him by faith through Christ, and he created He made us into his workmanship Rather than judging us by our works He made us into something good Through his work Rather than demanding certain works from us Because of Christ's grace And then he gets to chapter 3 And he says, okay, so now That you've read all that This is what he says He says, in reading this then You will be able to understand my insight Into the mystery of Christ What is the mystery of Christ? 
Is it that Jesus saved us from our sins if we'll believe in him? In Colossians 2 it is. Yeah. Yeah, that is a great mystery of God. God doing something amazing that we would not have thought up ourselves. But, it, but, but it's actually a lot, it's a lot more than that. And that's what he's getting into. He says, um, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, and has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, right? So that's, the gospel is Jesus dying for us and drawing us to himself if we will believe and trust him. Through that, that good news called gospel, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ, in Christ Jesus. His intent was that now, through the Church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you see how very Jesus-centered this is? He says it's because of the gospel. It's the mystery about Christ. The Spirit of God has revealed this. And it is— it, all that happens in bringing this thing called the church together is in the promise of Christ Jesus, and it all happened according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? So it's very Jesus-centered, but, but, but the, here's the gr- great mystery is God has taken different people who would normally hate each other and brought them all into the single organism and family called the church. In fact, the words that he uses for heirs together, members together, and shares together, they translate into two words, but they're single words in Greek. And the funny thing about them is, of the three of them, two of them are made up. So the, the Apostle Paul is trying to get across what, it, what, what this whole thing is, this thing that we never would have thought up and never would have designed ourselves, that God has designed and created. And he's, he's, he's like trying to help us like get the picture of how big a thing this is. And he's got one word for people coming together, but he wants it, he's got to emphasize this more. So he takes the word with, and he takes some other Greek word, and he just puts it together. Sue something. And so he says that we're heirs together, we inherit simultaneously. We're members together. We have membership in one thing together, and we're sharers together, that it belongs to all of us and moves in and out between us, right? We're—and then we, he says, and now through the church, what, what is—what's happening through the church? The manifold wisdom of God should be made known. What's the point there? God's real intrinsic worth— at least in relationship to his wisdom and providence of bringing about what he wants to in reality, is being displayed. That is, God's rightful reputation is being restored to him through him redeeming us into one people, the church. And it is through not our singing, though that is part of it, it is through the church that God is displaying to all peoples his rightful identity, his rightful authority, the truth about his wisdom. And it's not just that. Here's the thing that's a little kind of weird about it. The point is that in, in Ephesians 3, is, is not even that people in sub-Saharan Africa or West Madison would know about Jesus and what Jesus is doing and how God is so wise in creating this thing. He's actually arguing that it is at, the, at that point in history that angels and demons were finally catching on to what God was really like and really doing. Because he says, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? He says explicitly, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, which if you read to chapter 6 and other places where Paul uses this language, he's actually referring to angels and demons as well as to all of humanity. He's, so, so in some sense, there, have been an, there had been angels 
who from a long, long, long time ago, they had been obeying God as his servants, but they, they didn't even really know what was happening until it was being worked out in God creating the church in real-time space history. I mean, think about that. Now, in relationship to that, it cannot be said often enough what the church is. The church is not the building, right? The church is the, is the, is the people in it. It's us together, right? Um, look, at, look at these pictures and tell me what all these buildings have in common, okay? When you know what it is, just say it. They all have windows. That's not the th- answer, though. What? They, no. Nope. Nope. They're all made out of shipping containers. Look at them again. They're all made out of those tractor-trailer shipping containers that almost everything in the world is shipped in. See? I just cut out the side. Look. See how they've dropped the side down as a porch? In front of the windows, and you can just close it back up. It's inner city security. See? Isn't that funny? See, and so the reason, one of the reasons why we say church is because if, if I was like, I'll, I'll see you at the container this week, that would be a little weird. You know? It would be a little weird. But, but that's all we're doing, right? We just, we're, we're, we're in the container, Right? That's why we're here in the container. But why do we have a container? Here's why we have a container. Because two Christians hanging out isn't the church. Just Christians being generally around each other, that's not a church. The church is Christians gathering together to become what Jesus wants them to be and has called them to be and has created them to be and redeemed them to be together. And therefore, the church is a gathering of people. It's not a building, but it's a gathering of people for a particular purpose. And that's point number two. But that's what it is. It's not just a few Christians hanging out, and it's not a building. It is a group of Christians gathering together for a God-appointed purpose that God has actually delineated in the Scripture. We can know it. Hence, what's in the backpack. Right? But the point here is, if, if, the, if the church is God's plan for its glorification, not just our singing, or not just our praying, or not just things like that, then see, you can't not be part of a local church. In a passionate kind of way. It is the thing God is creating. It is the reason you were redeemed to be part of it. And no matter how uninteresting or boring or whatever you would normally think of it as, its essential spiritual identity is that it is the bride of Christ. It is the living temple being built up to house the Spirit of God. It is the body of Christ. It is it's all these things that Scripture talks about. Now, the second thing we've got to look at then is, therefore, if that's where we're going, what ought to be in the backpack? Or what does Scripture say should be in our backpack? And that is, everything that builds us up together is what's meant to— What are we supposed to do when we get together? Well, we're supposed to worship, right? I mean, it's Sunday morning worship. We got together for worship. This is worship. We had a time of singing worship, right? We're here for worship. No. No, you're not. No, you're not. You are— You are, but you're not. And that is to say that when we look at what the New Testament teaches about why we gather together, we gather together to worship God because 
It's our, it's our identity. But when you look at what the New Testament says about us gathering together, it says that we are to select to do together what builds up the church. Which makes perfect sense, because if our singing is God's plan for his glorification, we should do whatever we can to produce what? More singing, right? If, if personal, direct, vocal expression of God's worth is God's plan for his self-glorification, then whatever we can do to produce more of that is what we ought to do, right? And see, that's not how Scripture talks about our gatherings. What our gatherings say— what the scriptures say about our gatherings is we should do together whatever we can do to make us into, or for God to use to make us into, the sort of people that as a people radiate his true worth. We should be doing together whatever builds each other up. So look at Hebrews 10. And notice how connected these are to who Jesus is, what that means we should all be seeking individually, and then how we should be seeking that together. It's in all these passages. So here, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, right? That's the gospel, right? Jesus died for us and brought us into the presence of God through his death. He remains our leader, shepherd spiritually. We have a high priest there for everything that we need spiritually, standing at the right hand of God. Because that's true, what should we do? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, that's who we have to become. Because Jesus is Jesus, that's who we have to become. So, therefore, let us and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How are we supposed to do that? Verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. You see what he's arguing? It's an argument. It's very clear. Here's who Jesus is. Here's who we have to do everything we can to become. It should be the greatest passion of our life. Given that, we've got to think about how we can spur one another on. Given that, we need to get together and do it. And we need to never neglect getting together for that express purpose. Is it worship? Well, worship is going to be included. Right? Expressing to God what his rightful reputation is has got to be there if we're going to become people who exist to show to all people what God's rightful reputation is going to be. Worship could never be secondary in the church. But is it God's plan for self-glorification? No. The church is. Therefore, what's the number one goal when we get together? To build each other up into what we were meant to be. Same thing in Colossians. Same thing. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, right, he just listed a bunch of really important spiritual virtues. If what? If the world is going to see that we believe God is of absolute extreme worth, we're forgivers. 
We're humble. We're ready to be patient. Those things display God's worth. Those are these incredible spiritual virtues meant to be built into us. Now, if we're going to put them on, we put them on in love, which binds together in perfect unity. Therefore, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of the body you were called to peace, and be thankful, right? How do we do that? Let the word of Christ, let the, let the message about Christ dwell in you richly. How are you going to do that? Because we're going to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what is he saying? He's saying, should we, should we worship together? That's the main thing, right? He's saying, you're going to do two main things. You are going to take in the word of Christ. The message about Jesus, the truth about Jesus, what that means, how that applies. You, we're going we're to come together to take that in, and we're going to sing, or that is, we're going to express through artistic means that God has given us to fill out our humanity. We're going we're to offer that to God, and we're going to do it with thankfulness in our hearts, and we're going to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's going to be connected to Jesus, and we're going to do it with thankfulness. And we love, because that is necessary to transform us. And whatever we do, that is, anything we choose in addition to that as electives that we're going to do to try to build each other up, that's fine. Whatever you do in word, whatever you say, or whatever you do, that's fine. Do it. Think together. Let's figure out what to do to build each other up. But whatever we do, do, we need to do it in the name of Jesus. We need to do it thankfully. And we need to do it to build each other up. That's the exact same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, right? Remember this from the series we just finished, where he's like, Gosh, you guys are like speaking in tongues and prophesying and doing all this spiritual stuff and you're driving everybody crazy. And what's the problem? The problem is people aren't encouraged. People aren't being built up by it. You think you're being spiritual, but being spiritual is doing what? The opposite, building others up. Therefore, he says twice in that chapter, he said, I see that you're really eager for manifestations of the Spirit. I see you really want to be spiritual, but here, listen. Strive to excel in building up the church. That is the people into the image of Christ. And what that ends up meaning is that we've got to actually recognize that the purpose of the church, is, the purpose of the church is not for us to come together and sing songs to glorify God. The purpose of the church is to become a people together who just simply do glorify God in everything. It is the organism that is God's plan for his self-glorification, not just the singing Though the singing of worship is a great way to glorify God and to build each other up. Because we'll, even when we sing, we're admonishing each other, we're teaching each other, we're taking in ourselves that there is change happening when we sing and when we sing to glorify God. But that's not—but why do we—if all we're doing here is to, make, is to express our love for God, why is there preaching? And why has there been since the very first time Christians gathered? And it's because— we're not just getting together to speak God's rightful reputation back to him. We're getting together to become a people who radiate what God's reputation should be to all people and even to all beings. And therefore, um, if, if you want to say what has to be in the church backpack, I think these things should be in the church backpack. Even if you think after I tell you them, you should leave this church to go find them. I still think these are the things— I think any church seeking to be a true church and seeking to be a healthy church and seeking to become what Jesus wants us to be should have at least these six things. That is, shepherding leadership. It's not, it's not a democracy. 
God will raise up certain people of spiritual maturity, and he will set them as shepherds and leaders over us. There's lots of people nowadays who will be like, well, I go to this church for worship, and I like to hear some sermons over there, and I listen to that podcast, and I go over here for the singles group, and then I'm here for small groups. And and I've talked to lots of people who love Jesus a lot, and I really respect them, but they think that way about the church. And the question I always ask them to show them how wrong that is, is I say, okay, who's the person who can get in your face and tell you you're an idiot, and you'll listen to them? So yeah, you go to five or six different places to consume religious goods and services, but where's your pastor? And if they can tell me, oh, it's that, it's that place. It, that's my church. I, I go over here and these things are helpful for me. But th- this is the person where if they got in my face, I would listen. Because if you are part of the flock, everywhere in the New Testament, it talks about that the flock has shepherds. And if you don't know who your shepherd is, that's, that's a problem. You need to figure that out. Even if you hate me and don't want me to be that shepherd, Okay. Even though we've got 13 other elders that are better shepherds. Okay, second is gathered worship. You should gather. And in that gathering, worship and love should be expressed toward God. And listen, I'm not just talking about simultaneous worship, meaning Zach plays a song up here, and we all close our eyes and sing totally independently like we're totally alone with Jesus. That's fine. You can do that for some of the worship set. That's, that, that's okay. But simultaneous worship and corporate worship are different. It is different for us all to close our little eyes and think about us and Jesus, and for us all to sing one song together towards Jesus, recognizing that it's not our inner psychological state that touches Jesus' heart. It's that we would come and be part of his people he's bringing together and offering something that demonstrates his right reputation to him. The third is preaching. You should get yelled at. I'm just kidding. No, um, there, there should be admonishment and teaching that is instructive, but also heart-opening. It should not be merely instruction, and it should not be merely emotional. But it should, it should be getting at something. It should grate on you. It should encourage you. You should feel something. It can be a negative feeling. It can, be a pos- it can be both. It can go back and forth six times in the sermon. But it should be coming—the word of Christ will always come after you. And if, if, if what's being spoken wherever you gather with the church isn't coming after you, there's a problem. There's a problem. Either it's with how you're listening or it's with what's happening. It doesn't have to be 50 minutes long, but it should come after you a little bit. The fourth is disciplined remembering and celebrating. And here I'm referring to what we call the ordinances of communion or the Lord's Supper and baptism. God has commanded us to be happy over certain things and to remember because we have a terrible spiritual memory. Terrible. Just talk to anybody who's over like 35. Well, no, talk to somebody under about 32 and ask them what they remember about communism. Right? I'm 35, so I remember hiding under a desk. I remember growing up terrified that I was going to be blown up by Russians, okay? Like, it's a totally different—but you talk to people now, and they're like, ah, communism, whatever. Yeah, that happened a while back, didn't it? It wasn't really good, right? We know this historically. Historically, people have terrible memories. Like, like think about it. A month ago in the news cycle, do you even know what's ha- what happened a month ago in the news cycle? No, of course not, because none of it's history. That's why I stop reading the news so much and read your Bible. But that's an aside. Um— <laughs> But the point is, is that we have terrible memories. And so the reason why there are ordinances is so that every—for us, every month, or you can have it more than that, but we get together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why? Because we have to remember Jesus died for us. Why? Because we're constantly becoming self-righteous and forgetting it. Constantly. Constantly. 
And so if we're not constantly coming back and realizing, oh, no, wait, yep, I'm an idiot, and Jesus died for me, and I'm not near as bright as I think I am, or smart as I think I am, or good as I think I am, I need to learn humility, and I need to learn grace again, that these acts of memory are important, and acts of celebrating. Next week, next week's the 20th, right? So next week we're going to have communion, and we're going to have a baptism. And we are going to remember, and we are going to celebrate. And then we have to be a community of encouragement and discipline, where people's lives are close enough together where you're getting encouragement, and you're also being disciplined. People are getting after you. Because if nobody's getting after you, do you really think you're perfect? I mean, do you really think that you have no fatal flaws? Right? The gospel teaches us. I mean, people talk about how, how ugly an idea, this idea of being, us being depraved is, or how, how silly an idea of piety is, but being a lifelong learner is like a really cool thing in like white upper middle class West Madison. Well, piety is lifelong learning. Piety is to believe you're not awesome, and there is something out there that is awesome, and you need to learn it. What is that going to produce? A heart always open to being continually transformed and finding out truths that we don't know, i.e. lifelong learning. Get some piety, right? Yeah? So, and in community, people should come after you. They should tell you you're wrong about stuff. And and here's why. They shouldn't have to volunteer it, because you should be inviting it. Every week, about my sermons, which are, are very personal to me, Right? They say about preachers, you know, we just get up here, we just die every week. They're very personal to us. Every week I sit in a meeting and I go, what was wrong with my sermon? Please tell me. That is not fun. But it has to happen, because I want to be a better preacher. I want to be a better man. And then lastly, hospitality and invitation. Everywhere in Scripture, there's this idea, the, the community has to be including Inviting people in to see the glory of God. And why should that work? Because if we are a people that radiate the glory of God, even if our music wasn't fabulous, and even if our preaching was way too long, if we as a people radiated the glory of God, it's not the glory of God in our singing that would have to win them. It would be us as a people that would win them. Boring churches can be enormously evangelistically successful. I've been to some amazingly evangelistically successful churches that would bore the onion peelings off of you in terms of their preacher. But he was telling the truth, and people had learned to listen, and they had been transformed, and the ministries of that church had transformed people, and they were living out the gospel, and people were coming to Jesus because the people were radiating the glory of God, and they showed it forth in their singing, and they showed it forth in their everything. And so I I believe that we are meant to make sure these six things are in our backpack. One last thing, particularly for people who go to church a lot. One of the things that is unhelpful is, you know, we've got our, we've got our little backpacks and we've got all our, our Jesus stuff in there. You know, we've got, got a, your bug nets and you've got your spiritual toilet paper and, and, and all that stuff, climbing gear. But one of the things that oftentimes we don't realize is, is while we're doing this as Christians, there's some stuff we do just because we like it or because we've done it. And it really makes it harder for people who have not carried the backpack before to be okay with it. Because what it is to them is kind of like the fact that we just kind of put weight in their backpack just for fun. And, or because we're just not thinking about it. And they come into our church and they look at the backpack that we're telling them they should put on. And they look in the backpack and this is what they find in there. Where they, see, they see all the other stuff, but they're like, who are these idiots that they put these in here? And, and, and we have to be very sensitive 
and loving towards those God is trying to... Those God is trying to reach. There's this place in Acts 15 where there's these Gentiles trying to come to Jesus, and the Jews are like, you can't come to Jesus unless you become a Jew. And Peter says, you know, at the very beginning, God showed that he had concern for them. And James, who's like the super Jew Jew, said, he's like, you guys, we cannot make it hard for the Gentiles who are coming to God. And he takes the whole law, 600 and something laws, and he reduces it down to five things they shouldn't do. He's like, these things are totally, if you follow Jesus, you've got to do these five things. But this other stuff, this was, for, this was for a different time. It was a different covenant. God is doing something new now. And we can't, and we, we have to be a people who our traditions can be held up to the scrutiny of, is it in the backpack for the right reason? I know you think that's easy for me to say, but I'm already annoyed at some of the stuff younger people than me do, okay? But everything that we do has to be coming up, because see, there's some traditions that will stand the test. Like if you're a hiker, it's traditional that hikers wear hiking boots. And if you have a young hiker who's like, I don't want to wear hiking boots, you can be like, okay, you can try that, but there's a reason why we wear hiking boots, and it's a really good reason. But see, there's other things that are silly that they don't want. They don't want to wear the silly hats or something. And we have to let that go, and we need to make sure that we're constantly going back. Just like if you've ever been a hiker, you know you go back to your backpack nine, ten times before you go on your trip to make sure you're not carrying a thing you don't need to carry. And when it comes to what we do not need, we do not need extra weight in the burden of the backpack for people who are coming to Jesus. Because, yeah, there are lots of people who really don't want to come to Jesus, and they'll make all kinds of excuses about how nasty the church is, which are mostly false. But there are people who God is drawing that we are putting metal in their backpack that shouldn't be there. The last question that we have to ask ourselves, I think, is, it is a burden. The question is, is it worth it? Almost everything worthwhile in your life is a burden on some level. It has weight. Almost everything in your life has weight. The question is, is that weight worth it? Where are you going, and what are you going to need to get there? And if you really don't know where you're going, because honestly, guys, seriously, do we really know where the heck we're going? Do we know what the church, radiating God's glory as it has been from eternity past, to the extent to which it can exist in the pre-glorified life, do we have any idea what that is? Because if you do, you need to come apply for my job. Because I don't. I have some ideas. But I'm willing to trust Jesus that some of the stuff he has stuck in my backpack I'm going to need. And I am willing to carry it. Even some of the stuff that I don't have that good an attitude about, I'm willing to carry it because I have found out through my life that most of the stuff I didn't think I need that I carried because he said I probably was going to need it, but half of it I've used. And I am beginning to imagine how I can use about the rest of the half of it. And I am really excited that I didn't pack my backpack. And, what I, and there's this place that always intrigues me in John 7, where Jesus said to a bunch of people, he said a bunch of teaching, Jesus teaching. The people were like, well, that's kind of intriguing, but I'm not really sure if I want to do that. And he said, listen, I know you're listening to me talk, and you don't know if this is really from God or not. Right? And I'm not Jesus, so just amp that up 50 times, right, for us. But Jesus said to them, he said, listen, if anyone chooses to do God's will— he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. You see, there are a lot of things that he is just not going to prove to you. But he will invite you in the sense to say, listen, I'm going to tell you what to do, and you try it, and you do it. 
and see if when you do it, you don't find out that this was really from God. And here's what that requires. Faith. Did you think you were going to get out of faith? I mean, (laughs) if you want to get out of something and it's faith, Christianity is not the religion for you, right? I mean, it's, there's a lot of stuff you can get out of in Christianity. Faith is not one of them. Stepping out and trust toward God is not one of the things we get out of. It is the last thing we get out of. And it is, life is, our life and our, and our growth is always going to require that at every single step. And so I hope, I hope as you think about this, I hope that you will believe it's worth it. I hope you'll be more articulate with people who don't think so. But I hope that, my hope isn't that you'll tell a bunch of people to come to church. That's not my hope. My hope is that the, the solidness of the conviction in your heart that being fully part of the real body of Christ is supremely worthwhile. And not because I'm interesting, because you, if you think I'm interesting, you'll be annoyed with me in five years, okay? Or that you like something at this church. But because of Jesus, you trust him that the thing he is creating for the glorification of the one beautiful one is worthwhile. Let's pray. Father, um, we are people with a, a positional perspective that it's difficult sometimes to see what's going on or what you're doing or why you're doing it. And sometimes we don't even understand all that's already in the Bible for us to know about it, and it makes us more confused. And, but we recognize that you're, you've revealed yourself as extremely compassionate, not just with our, our behavior, but even with our doubts. Remember one of the last books of the Bible, one little page book where you say in the book of Jude, be merciful to those who doubt. And so, Father, um, we're so glad that you relate to us this way, but will you please help us to see the thing that is the church, the mystery of Christ, um, for what it is? And will you cause us to be a people who not only go, but who fight with everything in us for the life and vitality of this community and for the life and vitality of all the gatherings of Christ that we, that we touch in any way. We pray that you'd be blessing faith, hope, and love right now as they're receiving a blessing from us for that purpose and for all the other churches we share a sister and brotherhood with. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.